morning we celebrate your name. We exalt you as holy. We lift up these praises unto you and pray that they would be worthy incense, an offering of thankfulness before you, even this morning. We are thankful for the power that you have evidenced in resurrection, resurrection of lost souls, dead in sin, who are deserving of hell, who have been brought to newness of life by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. For every blood-bought saint in this room, for every believer who's had his eyes spiritually open to see the truth of the gospel, they have personally experienced a resurrection. More than this, we will be resurrected in the final day, where the, day, the grave itself will not be able to hold us, because we are in Christ and the grave could not hold our Lord and Savior. We will rise again because of your power to raise the dead. And one day we will be joined with our glorified body to praise you, like we have done this morning, only beyond in so many glorious ways we can barely imagine forever and ever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have left us a testimony of your goodness, your grace, and your gospel in your recorded word. We thank you that your providence and your spirit has gone forth, revealing these things in ages past to fathers of the faith who have gone before, all the way through to the coming of our Lord and Savior and to the ministry of his apostles. We pray that as we turn to your scriptures today, that you would unite us to the church of all ages, and more than this, unite us with the truth, Lord, that has the power to save. Awaken our hearts to the knowledge of the gospel and quicken within us a response to these things that would move us to be transformed in the image of Christ our Lord, that would move us to heed the word of God in faith and obedience, that would move us, Lord, to glorify your holy name by being conformed to the standard of righteousness that we see portrayed in your holy scriptures. In all of this, I pray that you would be glorified as your people are strengthened and equipped and as the lost are drawn unto salvation and as your judgments are proclaimed to a wicked world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, we turn to our Genesis series and I encourage you to join me there in Genesis 6. And Genesis 7, the end of one chapter, the beginning of the next. Genesis 6, 18 through 7, 5 will be our primary text today. And we'll likely touch upon a few verses, perhaps through to 16, and pick up on some of those ideas in further exposition at a later time. The title of this morning's message is Heeding the Word of God. Of course, the word heeding means listening or paying attention to having your uh, faculties mentally and, and uh, dialed into and your spiritual attention acute to understand that which is before you. Uh, Noah is a great example in our text today of a saint of old when his example heeded the Word of God. And so we consider his testimony today in our message. Uh, under this aim, the purpose of this morning's message is to proclaim the centrality, or you could say primacy or priority of the Word of God through the calling of Noah. The Word of God, the special revelation of our Lord, is prominently featured in the calling, in the account, in the history, in the testimony of Noah, the great servant of the Lord, who, by the Lord's instruction, prepared an ark for the saving of his family and for the population of the world with the land creatures that would disembark after the great flood that destroyed the world uh, because of the judgments of God falling upon their wickedness. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word today? And with your Bible open to Genesis 6.18, let us hear the reading of the Holy Scriptures in your ears today. 
Here we have the Holy Word of God. The Lord speaking in verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of creeping thing, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, for it shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22 of chapter 6, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. 7.1 Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offering alive on the face, their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The Hebrew word for covenant is bereath. In the original language, we see its first appearance in chapter 6, verse 18. When Moses records of the account of Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. God speaking in the first person, I will establish my bereath, my relationship, my arrangement with you. And then we see details of this arrangement, details of this relationship, which includes promises to Noah, to his family, and also includes the preservation of the future seed that would repopulate the earth after the flood. So following this first explicit reference of the concept of covenant in Scripture, Moses then proceeds to document the relationship of Noah to his Lord and Savior. We see in the account of Noah his relationship to his Lord and Savior. Why do we use this language? Because God is saving his people. God is Noah's Savior in delivering him his word and the the specific and explicit instructions of how Noah would be saved from judgment. And this instrument of salvation pictured in this ark will be the hope for mankind's future. There is much symbolized, there's much significant about this story in the grand picture and the grand scheme of God's sovereign revelation. What is history according to the Scripture? We've referenced this before. It's a phrase that I've developed for the purpose of our Genesis study. What is history? History really and truly is, according to Scripture, it is time measured by the progress of redemption. That is a biblical philosophy of history. Time measured by the progress of redemption. Those are the meaningful milestones, the meaningful reference points in the history of mankind. What God has done to save His people. What God has done to glorify Himself through judging His enemies and restoring a remnant unto the praise of His great name and preserving them from judgment of undue uh, their sin by substitute sacrifice and then bringing them 
by way of His sanctifying power unto glory. Salvation, or time measured by the progress of redemption or salvation. This arrangement of Noah to the Lord is built upon special and direct revelation. Young people, you've been studying this of late, I trust. Um, So I'm going to give you an example, and you tell me if this is special revelation or general revelation. So the trees that are starting to uh, bud and leaves are growing in the springtime, they're coming back to life. It's kind of like a picture of resurrection, life back from the death of winter. Is that an example of special revelation or general revelation, young people? We have a couple specials. Any votes for general? What would you say? Anyone else? General revelation or special revelation? That is general revelation. God speaks. He reveals something of His creative ability and character through the things that He has made. Romans 1 talks about this. It is God showing us His creative glory through His creatures, through His creation. Here's another example. You tell me if this is special revelation or general revelation. God spoke to Noah and said, prepare an ark for the saving of yourself and your household. Is that special revelation or general revelation? Special, Theo says, that is correct. When we hear the voice of God in Scripture declaring to Noah, even though the Bible wasn't in its written form at that time, when Moses records these words, he is recording special revelation, that is, specific instructions for that, that involve a revelation of the nature of God and His plan of salvation for His people. We can only know these things. The true nature of God is our Savior and Lord, and the purpose or the plan that He has laid out for our salvation we can only know these things through His special revelation. And thus, He speaks. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden by saying, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but he would bruise his, his heel. Again, special revelation. And here, the first explicit mention of covenant, verse 18, quote, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. Special revelation. In receiving the Word of God, saints, think of it this way. In receiving the Word of God regarding hope for His people, Noah assumes the calling of prophet. What is the special job of a prophet? Well, a good rule of thumb or a good phrase to remember is a prophet, he hears God and brings God's Word to God's people. So he speaks to God's people on behalf of God. A priest is kind of like the reverse. He speaks to God on behalf of the people, pleading their case, making atonement, seeking to offer sacrifice on their behalf. That's the job of a priest. A prophet goes before the Lord and he hears the word of God and then delivers the words of God to God's people. We see Noah assuming the calling of prophet in receiving the instructions from God for the salvation of himself, his family, and the future world. Furthermore, he goes to work. What does Noah do after God gives him instructions? He goes to work on a big project. Does anyone know what he's going to do? The ark. The ark, that's exactly correct. Anyone remember how long it took for Noah to build this ark? How long did it take him? 40 days? Well, not exactly. The ark took a little longer than that. 100 years, now you're getting close. So far as we can tell, about 120 years. Noah goes to work on the ark. He listens and obeys. And, all of, and for this century plus... He is building the instrument of his family's salvation. He is building, indeed, the instrument 
for the salvation symbolized in this ark, this boat, this means of salvation. He is building God's plan for the preservation of His people. And He takes on board supplies sufficient for the calling, which will include, yes, a priestly role as well. When He disembarks, when He uh, lands finally, Noah and his family on dry land, He will offer sacrifices to the Lord. And thirdly, we see a kingly role in Noah's calling as well. He, as a second Adam type, will take dominion over the new earth and will have a calling to steward the new world with all of these animals in tow in this ark that he has made. So we see in part that Noah served as a type of a prophet, priest, and a king. Who does this remind us of? Some of you may be thinking of the threefold office of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Noah, if you will. He is a prophet, a priest, and king. In fact, the prophet, the priest, the king, par excellence. Yet we see message, a message of Christ in the offices that Noah prefigured in the gospel according to this forefather of the faith. There is a new creation that is pictured in these dramatic events as well. The old world will pass away in judgment, and a new world of sorts will replace it. In the record of Noah's intent obedience, we have, or in, in, in the record of Noah's uh, story, we have uh, the uh, documentation of his intent obedience that's pictured in these dramatic events. In the record of Noah's heeding of the Word of God, or his obedience to God's Word, we have remarkable and exact obedience, heeding the will and Word of God, which is emphasized in four notations in our text today, and we'll touch on those in a moment. And these point, may I suggest, to the priority of the Word of God, providing salvation for the faithful, for those who have faith in Him, and hope for the future, for a future Savior, who will provide substantially at every point what is foreshadowed in the record of Noah's obedience. The Word of God is featured in the account of Noah, but not just the Word of God, but also the, the importance of heeding the Word of God. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let me give you a heading and just two major points today. Three subpoints under each of those. The heading is God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated through, number one, the reach and responsibility of the covenant. God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated in this account through the reach and the responsibilities associated with the covenant that we read of in 6.18. And secondly, God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated in the righteousness required of God's Word and the refuge provided in God's Word. So righteousness required and refuge provided will be our second major point today. God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated through, firstly, reach and responsibility of the covenant. So there are four similar notation, or four similar statements that appear in our text today, and I want to point these out to you. I think they help us to structure the emphasis of our text and a little beyond. Notice Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What God commanded is the Word of God. The fact that Noah heeded this Word speaks to his obedience. Heeding God's Word is central to this text. Verse 5, we have a, a statement again. And Noah did all 
that the Lord had commanded him. Again, absolutely central to this account is the Word of God and Noah's hearing and obeying this Word. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. There are two more references that are similar. Verse 9 of chapter 7. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with, with Noah, referring to the instructions for what specific animals to take aboard. And notice this last phrase, as God had commanded Noah. So once again, the command to Noah, the word of God, these specific instructions are featured as central in our text. Then finally, verse 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Suffice it to say, by this four-time repeated theme, God's word and Noah's obedience are central to this text. This speaks to the reach and the responsibility of the covenant, what God requires in His relationship with man. In verse 18, again, I will establish my covenant with you, God says. I will make promises. I will establish a relationship. There will be a divine arrangement laid out. And he says, by way of specifics then, you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. But then the terms of this relationship, God's promises for salvation, are laid out in even more detail as instructions have preceded this point for the building of the boat and also for the collecting of the animals. In this, we see federal headship. That is, there is a representative of the covenant, namely Noah, who's given promises and responsibilities that extend beyond him. If Noah heeds God's word and he obeys, who will be saved? Who will be blessed? The most obvious answer is Noah. Listen and obey. There's great blessing in following God's instructions. This is true. But there is more truth connected to this statement as well. The reach and responsibility of the covenant goes beyond the covenant head to affect in either a positive or negative way, depending on the covenant head, those who are connected or, or who are, you could say, in Noah. We referenced this last time we were in Genesis, but it's a concept that's throughout the Scriptures, and it, we should pay close attention to it. That is to say, Noah's family was blessed through his obedience. If Noah had disobeyed, disregarded God's word, he would have perished, but seven others also, his wife, his sons, and their wives. But conversely, because Noah obeyed the Lord, because he listened and he obeyed God's word, he was blessed, his wife was saved, his sons and their wives also experienced salvation. But the reach and responsibility even goes beyond this, indeed to the animals themselves, and we'll touch on that in a moment. Responsibilities and promises extend beyond Noah to his family, to future generations, even to living creatures preserved to populate, and to refill the earth after the ark has landed. This is a recurring concept in Scripture, and it is both positively and negatively illustrated at different times in the redemptive record. Think of a negative example. Do you remember the guy Achan? There were special instructions that God gave for the defeat of the enemies of Canaan. In other words, you will be triumphant in your acquisition of the land, which is my promise. God made a covenant with His people and said, by this arrangement, uh, you will take possession of the great promises, the land that I have prepared in advance for you to fill, to walk in, to inhabit, to dwell in, and so forth. And then He would give in specific instructions for the defeat of a city, let's say. You are to 
uh, totally uh, destroy it and save nothing for yourself? Well, if you remember the sin of Achan, he was a man who decided to not heed God's word, but secretly and selfishly he stole uh, from, the lunder, from the plunder and the loot of the enemy, and he took it into his own possession. What happened to Achan? He was destroyed. He was stoned to death, as I recall. But not just him, his family as well. And that may be offensive to our modern ears. How is that fair? That Achan's family would die on account of his transgression. It's because of the concept of covenant headship or federal headship. There is a reach and responsibility of the covenant that goes far beyond its representative. This is important to remember. Um, an, uh, an example for us, an application for us, husbands, fathers in the room, you have covenant responsibilities for your family. God has given you a priestly role in your home. It is your responsibility to lift up the name of Christ in your discipline and instruction of your family, your children, to raise them, as the Scriptures say, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Mothers, you have the same responsibility as well, but fathers particularly are granted this responsibility to take that leadership role and to take that initiative and to make sure that happens in the confines of that covenanted relationship in your home. What if you fail? What if you do not heed God's Word and obey? Well, the consequences of that failure will extend beyond you, yes, even to your wife and to your children. And there will come a time of reckoning either by way of discipline, chastisement unto correction that the Lord will bring within the context of His beloved, or, God forbid, for those that do not heed His word, His gospel in the first place, there will come a day of reckoning in that final judgment where every idle word you will give an account for and you will find that you have earned hell on account of disregarding the word and the instruction of the Lord. The stakes are so high. So high in the way that God has ordered things. Our culture teaches us that we are the captain of our own salvation. We live in an age of lies and hyper-individualism, such that we pretend that our decisions don't affect those around us. But we are an autonomous island, and we have the ability to shape and to mold reality as we would prefer and as we see fit, and seldom do we take into account the consequences of this kind of worldview. It is absolutely self-destructive. It has multi-generational repercussions. The failure and the fallout of family commitment and faithfulness will extend to the children and the children's children in many cases such that you have almost the complete degradation of whole civilizations who disregard the word of the Lord and fail to realize the consequences of their responsibility as it relates to those around them. Take these words seriously. So much rides upon it. There's other examples to the positive in Scripture. Think of Abraham, a father of the faith. God makes a covenant with him, and what does he say? Depending on these terms and this arrangement, future generations will be blessed. We are here today because God's promises to future spiritual generations of Abraham are coming true. Even in America in 2000. 19. It is because of God's covenant faithfulness to that covenant head Abraham that through him and through the message of salvation that was given by way of revelation to him and then to extend by way of him being obedient to God's call to bear a son and through that family line 
to bear the revelation of God's plan for salvation for future generations. Ultimately, Christ has come through that same lineage. Ultimately, Christ has come, yes, even into our own hearts, grafting us in to the family of Abraham so that we might partake in the blessings that were promised to him all the way back in Genesis 12, I believe, where the Lord told him, I will make of you a great nation and you shall be a light to future generations. And here we are in, in, uh, in light and as evidence of these very promises coming true. So these are factors that are here featured in the account of Noah's story and, and Noah's and the events that are significant in his life. God's word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated through this reach and responsibility of covenant. Of course, covenant headship is illustrated most fully and most completely and most spectacularly through Jesus Christ. He is the covenant head of all covenant heads, and in Him, the second Adam, all receive resurrection, all receive salvation, who trust and believe in Him, that is, all who are in Christ receive the benefits of His death, they're transferred to Him, His, them, His righteousness is bestowed to them on account of the what we call great exchange, so on and so forth. And this is the true Noah, if you will, Jesus Christ, the covenant head, whose perfect obedience to the will of the Father purchased blessings beyond Him for multiple generations of spiritual children who are grafted into the vine, receiving, as we have said, these great promises federal headship. We see a recapitulation of the creation account here as well. That is, God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated through these events that recall the events of creation. Verse 19, you might notice language that's familiar to you from Genesis chapter 1. The Lord says to Noah, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Uh, to every sort shall, um, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Turn backwards uh, in your text to Genesis chapter 1. A few verses in the creation week have similar language. Notice in verse 20 and following. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird, again, according to its kind. And the Lord saw that it was good. The Lord blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The goodness of creation depends upon God's, category, God's categories. The created order, as God has prescribed and defined it, is central to the goodness of creation. And so it is encouraging to see that even though most of creation will be obliterated in this flood, nevertheless, the seeds of the goodness of creation will be preserved in the ark to repopulate, to replenish, and to fill it again 
with the goodness of the Lord's general revelation evident in the creatures, the land creatures, reproducing after their kind. Hence we see similar language in Genesis 6. That is to say, Noah is to bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive, of the birds, for instance, according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. So the goodness and the evidence of God's purpose in creation, His divine intent, His sovereign will, His holy order, His categories, His taxonomy of the creatures and the world as we see it, what He has prescribed and ordered as a picture of Himself, His nature and character to some degree, this will be preserved. There is a sort of recapitulation or a retelling or an echo of the creation account in these instructions that God gives to Noah. Why? Because a new creation is in view. God will preserve creation in this seed form to repopulate the earth according to its original goodness in part, and so this will be an aspect that will go forward. Noah was charged with the preservation of the diverse array of creatures, and this instruction signaled that created ordered distinctions and categories remain a permanent fixture of God's world on into the future. Don't underestimate the importance of this. The importance that the created order distinctions and categories remain a permanent fixture of God's good world into the future. We had a conference that Common Slaves, our ministry network, put on yesterday, and one of our speakers gave several lectures on the importance of distinctions and how central they are to the Christian worldview. And on the other side of the coin, he shared how paganism seeks to eliminate those distinctions. I've mentioned this before, related to the book of Genesis. In our day and age, the distinction between man and woman is becoming blurred in the knowledge and understanding and the values of our culture. A man can identify, the world tells us, as a woman, and that's just fine. You must refer to him by his so-called preferred pronoun, her so-called preferred pronoun, Z, so-called preferred pronoun. Now, you see, things become confusing, ambiguous, the lines are blurred, and the glorious beauty of God's good creation, which as an act of subservience to Him, lives in light of His definitions, His limitations, and His categories. As soon as man presumptuously declares His authority, His autonomy over God and says, nope, I'm going to erase those distinctions, and I'm going to recreate them in my own image, He has bought the original lie of Satan, seeking to reduce the earth to some amorphous and undifferentiated reality so that he can recreate it in his own image. Someone has quipped in the past that in the beginning, uh, God created man in his own image. And after the fall, man went and did likewise. After the fall, man attempted to create God, that is to say, in his own image. Will that attempt be successful? No. It always ends in judgment. You can be sure that the wickedness that preceded the flood included these pagan notions, impulses, and sinful attempts to recreate God in their own image. You can be sure that there was rampant androgyny, homosexuality, sexual perversion, promiscuity, and the breaking of God's covenant order and lines and boundaries all over the place in the pre-flood world. And it is no accident, it's not surprising at all then, that Noah 
in this godly-ordered family is preserved. And we see this one rare exception in this world of absolute wickedness based upon this fact that Noah valued God's Word, he heeded God's Word, he listened, and he obeyed. And ultimately there he found refuge from the chaos of the wickedness and rebellion of fallen man who is disregarding the order, the purposes, the divine intent, the sovereign prescription that the Lord has for His creation. And so this is pictured in our text today. There's a reason why the order of creation is preserved, even in God identifying in His instructions to Noah that He is to retain these animals according to their kinds. God's sovereign purposes and the order of His good creation is to remain a fixture on into the future. And thirdly, under point number one, in the reach and responsibility of covenant, we see a divine, a dominion mandate, a, a, an Adamic-like calling given to Noah. Uh, Noah is supposed to take these animals, just like Adam was called to name the animals and categorize them and so forth. In the first place, now, Noah is called to assemble this collection of animals to populate the ark, and he is called to take care of them. Verse 21, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. There is a cultural mandate that Noah is fulfilling that Adam failed in. Noah is charged with the original responsibilities, in part, vocation and calling that was given to Adam. This will be stated emphatically upon the disembarking, upon the landing of this watercraft when the ark finally rests on the mountains of Ararat. Turn over to chapter 9. The Lord blessed Noah and his sons, verse 1. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. A question for you, young people. Who received that command in the first place? Who is the first person to hear this instruction from the Lord? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's correct, Israel. Adam. Adam was the first one to receive this instruction. Adam has long since died, but now Noah hears an echo of the original dominion or cultural mandate. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the beasts of the earth. He goes on in verse 2, upon every bird in heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. He goes on to give instructions as to the government following the ark, which I see as God's providence to provide barriers from the world becoming as wicked as it once was in the pre-Diluvian or pre-flood state. But then he says again in verse 7, familiar words, And you, speaking to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. And he said to Noah and his sons with them, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The reach and responsibility of covenant now is given as a charge to Noah and Noah's a lineage, they are given this dominion mandate, they are given the calling that, uh, of Adam, as it were, to steward God's good creation in the new world after the boat has landed. So God's Word and Noah's obedience are demonstrated through the reach and responsibility of covenant. Second major point today, God's Word and Noah's obedience are shown or demonstrated through righteousness required 
and refuge provided. And now we uh, turn over to chapter 7 and consider verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. There is a relationship between the righteousness of Noah and the salvation that is provided. This is, is a restatement of the terms we've already read in Genesis 6-8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It goes on, these are the generations of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah heeded God's word. There is a relationship between the righteousness of the covenant head and the salvation that was provided. Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I submit to you this theological truth. To the degree that Noah is portrayed as a man who finds favor by virtue of his righteousness, he prefigures Christ, the true second Adam. You see, in the account, we haven't really been introduced to Noah as a sinner as of yet. We know he's a sinner. And later in the course of Genesis, we'll see example of his own personal faults and failings. But I think in this text here, we can see something of a calling of Noah that was symbolic, that was uh, typological, if you will. It pointed forward to Christ. That is to say, the calling of Noah as a righteous man to provide salvation for his people pictures a righteous man to come, a truly righteous man, a truly sinless man. Who was this one? Who was the Noah to come whose perfect righteousness secured salvation for his people by becoming the very instrument of salvation that would bring them through the condemnation of judgment unto hope of eternal life? Yes, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The righteousness of Jesus Christ ultimately is the reason why salvation was provided for him. It's interesting. There's correlations between these texts and even the sufferings of Christ, even his temptation. It says, for instance, that for 40 days and 40 nights, rain will fall upon the earth. Jesus uh, fasted in the wilderness, suffering in his probation testing period, proving his own righteousness for 40 days and 40 nights in Matthew chapter 4. And there's other uh, parallels as well. They're all through the text. Remember, history is time measured by the progress of redemption. And what was in shadowy form prefigured in Noah will be evidenced substantially in Christ in due course. We have only to follow the golden threads of redemption woven through the account of mankind's history to discover these jewels as the Spirit reveals them through God's inscripturated Word. In the righteousness that was recognized in Noah was this fact. He had a generational testimony of holiness. I have seen that you're right. I have seen you are righteous before me in this generation. I submit that among mere humans, <clears throat> Noah was the most remarkable example of this kind of faithfulness in all of recorded history. That is to say, among his generation, Noah was righteous, but he and his, and his family were literally the only ones who were righteous. Let me ask you a question. I'm sure you've felt this way, but have you ever felt isolated, marginalized, maybe increasingly so, 
You are trying to live your life according to God's Word, but you live in a culture that is more and more at odds with your Christian values. You live in a world that more and more marginalizes, pushes to the fringes, calls your views extreme, dismisses you as a fundamentalist, refuses to hear what you care about, what you value, and what you hold dear in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the value of His holy word. Well, you might feel alone. You might feel isolated. You might feel that you are marginalized and lonely, that you are the only one righteous in your generation. Look around you, though, saints. We're here in a small body of believers, one among many across this globe. There are many in our generation, by God's grace, who are righteous in spite of living, perhaps, in a wicked culture. But none of us was so lonely in His righteousness, as I, uh, speaking uh, of mere men, than Noah and his family. Noah gave a generational testimony. He was the most remarkable example of this kind of faithfulness in all history. Never has there been a remnant smaller than Noah and his family, and never will there be a remnant this small again. Isn't that encouraging? Be encouraged that you stand in solidarity. You stand in fellowship with saints who've gone before, indeed Noah himself, and all the faithful who populate the realms of glory, the hall of faith as we call it in Hebrews 11, as well as those who suffer even unto death overseas, even this day, persecuted for their faith. You can be strong in spite of a wicked generation. If we ever feel isolated, increasingly pushed to the fringes, if we ever feel like we're weary because we're considered extreme, marginalized to the corner of culture that's increasingly rampant with wickedness, idolatry, godlessness, paganism, take heart and look to the testimony of Noah. Noah's testimony will forever demonstrate the sovereign sufficiency of God's keeping grace. If God can keep Noah righteous in his generation, can he keep us? Absolutely no matter the threat of a wicked world. Noah's testimony will forever demonstrate the sovereign sufficiency of God's keeping grace. This is the righteousness that was required of the covenant. This is the righteousness that God preserved in His servant Noah. This is the righteousness that stood out as a testimony in spite of a wicked generation, and hence, refuge, salvation, was provided. We see in our text, we continue to read future purposes in view. Verse 2 there's instructions, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. That's interesting, that adjective clean is introduced in our text. Clean versus unclean. Moses would know these categories from the law, but we see them revealed even earlier in his account of man's early history. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, the pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Clean and unclean. These are categories that represent holiness. What was clean was to be set apart for special use. It was to be sanctified. It was ordered or designated for the purposes of worship. Vessels were to be cleansed that would be used in, the whole, in holy purposes in God's place of dwelling with His people in the tabernacle and temple and so forth. Clean animals were the acceptable ones for sacrifice. These are symbolic pictures of things that, uh, that God used to show that that which is set apart for Him must be holy, sacred, that must uh, ordain for a unique purpose, and so forth. And so there's purposes in Noah taking these seven pairs among the clean animals, and it has to do with God's future purposes of worship. 
In chapter 8, for instance, we see what some of these animals were used for in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Do you see that the covenant is conditional upon sacrifice? Because a holy, clean sacrifice that was set apart and purposed for honoring the Lord was provided as a substitute death, the terms of covenant would go forth. The promises were now purchased. Let me ask you, saints, members of the household of God in this room, the covenant promises that you receive in Jesus Christ, were they purchased at the cost of sacrifice? Was there a holy, blameless, sanctified, set-apart, clean, if you will, sacrifice offered so that the promises of your salvation, future glory, new creation, new birth, can be assured in your experience? Yes and amen. Who is Christ? He is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He is the clean sacrifice, as it were. He is the one set apart, sanctified, the one that God purposed, and these sacrifices prefigured. Who was killed so that the promises of a new creation could be realized for all who are in His covenant? Noah and his family needed a sacrifice. Ultimately, it wasn't Noah's righteousness that he earned in and of himself that could guarantee him as covenant. No, that was just a picture, his righteousness. Noah needed a sacrifice as well. And ultimately, that sacrifice was Christ his Lord, Christ to come. Faith in, future, in a future Messiah and a future sacrifice set apart to atone as a substitute for his own sin ultimately was a key to the ultimate of covenants, new creation, future hope of glory. Righteousness required, refuge provided, and they're in spite of present judgments. So there is a generational testimony that we see featured in our text. There's future purposes in view, even unto worship of the Lord, sacrifice which pictures substitutionary atonement. And finally, these are in light of present judgments that are coming upon the world. Again, verse uh, four, chapter 7, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And our recurring theme, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Present judgments. Seven days, again, signaling a creation-type event, but this time it's the destruction of creation. Creation uh, the creation week was seven days, six days of work, one day of rest. And now in seven days, the Lord, in parallel, pronounces that creation as you have known it will incur judgment, a judgment that will not be replicated in the same way ever again, a judgment that was so total, that was so broad-reaching, uh, that was so uh, in, uh, ubiquitous in its scope that it encircled the earth by the waters of drowning judgment covering the highest of mountains, the depth of 15 cubits. And we've mentioned before, but the evidence of this judgment yet remains with us today. It is no accident 
that two-thirds of this globe is covered with the evidence of God's righteous power to destroy his enemies who oppose him. You know, man might shake his fist in God's face. Man might declare himself to be the captain of his own destiny. Man might sin with a high hand. Man might presumptuously assume that he can rewrite reality in his own image, as we mentioned before. But when you're on the high seas, in a frail vessel, and any vessel can be frail when the seas of a typhoon or a hurricane, the breath of God's nostrils whips those chaotic surface into a life-gulping, swallowing force of absolute destruction, man begins to shake and shudder in his boots and cry out for hope. A picture of man's vulnerability, frailty, is evident even in the seas that yet bring great destruction to this day. A hurricane threatens the beaches of Florida and millions flee hundreds of miles to escape the wrath of God that is pictured in this natural catastrophe. And so this is what was going to happen. The earth was going to be judged by the power of a righteous God. And this would happen in just seven days. But it would continue, this water pouring forth from the windows of heaven for 40 days and 40 nights until every living creature had gurgled to its death of drowning upon the face of the earth. Everything that once walked on the land will now be floating belly up in this global ocean as the Lord blots out creation from the face of the ground. Not only this, the Scriptures go on to declare in verse 11 that the fountains of the great deep will burst forth as the windows of heaven open and by these multiple sources of water which spewed forth at God's command, all of creation was swallowed In this event, Peter speaks of a judgment to come. He says that this world was destroyed once by fire, and there's a judgment, or once by flood, and there's a judgment to come. And he associates that with the destructive power of fire. And he pleads with man to enter the ark of salvation because there is judgment that hangs over the heads of rebels who disregard the word of God, who have not heeded. His instructions, His revelation, His terms of covenant. Will you heed His word today? We live, as in Noah's day, with an ark constructed by Jesus Christ with the door open, calling, today is the day of salvation, repent and believe. But there will come a time, that seven-day period, as it were, in the course of history, where the door will no longer be open. And the Lord, by His sovereign appointment, will decide the history, the door of history's opportunity to enter into Jesus Christ is now closed. And then the fires of His judgment will fall. And there will be no more hope for the lost. But they will stand before the judgment seat and they will hear one of two things. All people will hear one of two things. Enter into the joyous promises of covenant secured by you through Christ's blood that you have placed your faith in or enter into forever the flames of eternal perdition and judgment on account of rejecting my Messiah, the Noah to come, the Savior and Lord, the one prophesied of old, revealed and proclaimed through the gospel. These are the terms of coming judgment that must be proclaimed. The final phrase in, our, in uh, verse 16 struck me as I was studying this week. 
Those who entered were male and female of all flesh. They went in as God had commanded him. And then these last six words, and the Lord shut him in. And the, the picture in my mind is the hand, as it were, of God reaching down out of heaven. His imminent hand of God, manifest in space and time, reaches down to his servant Noah, this ark that he has made, where his family and all these pairs of animals are housed, and he physically closes the door of the ark. This is the final phrase that punctuates this text here that I was studying this week, although we haven't gotten to all its details. By a demonstration of God's sovereignty in salvation, His imminent hand is manifest in space and time, reaches down to His servant Noah and his family, and physically closes the door of the ark, reminding us, saints, that the physical hands of Christ would one day appear, be manifest in His incarnation, in space and time, and they too would be outstretched. But they would be outstretched upon the crossbeam of a Roman implement of cruel execution and crucifixion. And here again, rendering in this sovereign act, in space and time, on the cruel cross, that the instrument of salvation had now been fashioned by the hand of the Noah to come, if you will, in Christ alone, at His cross, is salvation found through the waters, as it were, of judgment. This is the message of Noah. His righteousness, the covenant with Him, hope for His family, hope for future generations, hope for a new creation. Ultimately, these things point forward and speak of Christ. Will you be found in Him today? If you are found in Him, I pray that this message stirs you to praise Him and thank Him for what He has done to preserve you from judgment. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the message of Your Holy Scripture. We thank You that, for the hope that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the beautiful ways that you have revealed these, these things all through the pages of your revelation. I pray that you would write upon the tables of, your heart, of our heart your holy word that we may not soon forget it. And I pray that we would, in the example of Noah, be not just hearers but also doers of the word. That we would learn to heed your word and to obey as you've given us the ability to by saving us in the first place that we might proclaim the primacy, the priority of your word and your gospel, calling the lost even this day unto repentance, to enter, to board the ark of Jesus Christ, to be saved from the judgment to come. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.